Uh, welcome to Hashtag Coffee. Um, and because we're about to uh, load this up on an attempt to, uh, to, to do an audio podcast as well, this is your host, Corey Cottrell, uh, and of course, my co-host, uh, Mr. Greg Smithwick. But today, um, for our inaugural uh, uh, audio podcast slash YouTube channel slash, oh my God, they're taking over the world. We've got Ash Gallagher on. Um, who's the, uh, Ash Gallagher. the, yes, the one, the only um ash gallagher who is uh just the best she's the best we just call this episode ash wednesday (laughs) yeah (laughs) yes i am i am all about calling this episode ash wednesday i am entirely cool with that ash gallagher how you doing i'm doing all right um i'm glad to be on with you guys today uh, um I'm, i'm sorry it couldn't be on the on the visual it seems that um my my connection um on the side of the world is a little sketchy uh, but I'm really glad to be on and, and have a chance to chat. So, yeah, those, for those that don't know, Ash Gallagher is a is a journalist who has covered war zones for a while. Now she's writing a book about her experiences in Mosul. And uh, it's a very human story, which is my favorite kind of, of, uh, of, of war correspondent writing. And we're super excited to be as supportive as we can of Ash in that endeavor. So, Ash, how can people uh, find out more about your writing project and, uh, and, and donate? Because that's the the name of the game here, is making sure that people understand that the book gets written on uh, on the grace of people who who believe in the message and want to donate to it. Well, it's been a really interesting journey because I actually initially I originally started writing about a year ago. Um, I had to sort of leave Iraq to write about Iraq, and um, and. You know, I went through sort of the traditional process, which was, you know, I had sort of uh, spoken to an agent and we had started some fishing and I wrote a few chapters here and there, but I really didn't, it took me some time. It took me time because I also needed to take care of me. And I'm a big, big advocate when it comes to mental health and uh, coming out of sort of difficult situations. And so a lot of the writing really began again in the spring. And this time um, I decided I would start sort of a GoFundMe and a fundraising effort to be able to do it because, you know, one, it does take me away from sort of day-to-day journalism, but two, you know, there was a a desire for it to be a journey Um, because I am addressing the human condition. I'm addressing how we all belong and I'm doing it through my own personal journey and sort of awakening story, but I'm using the operation uh, for Mosul, which was a nine-month operation in Iraq from about October 2016 to July 2017, using that lens um, to talk about these really important issues. So everything from mental health to PTSD to healing to restorative justice uh, to um, just, again, how we occupy ourselves as communities and tribes. And so um, I have put on my own website, uh, it's ashgallagher.com slash book, and people can actually read some details a little bit more about what I'm actually doing, um, as well as um, go to the GoFundMe page or play the videos or actually donate straight through, uh, straight through the website, um, which is how most people are actually finding uh, to do it anyway. And, and I want it to be a collective because, you know, this, this, this is a conversation. These are things that we should be doing in our communities to try and help offer healing to one another uh, in, in our connection. And that's kind of what I want my book to, well, it is what I want my book to segue into as far as, you know, sort of contribution to the collective. Um, Beautiful. And so that, that's where it's at. Awesome. Hey, are you uh, are you aware of the the? There's a movie out now, a, a documentary about Mosul. Are you aware of this, or do you know the folks that made it? You yeah, have on it? Uh, yeah, I know a handful of the folks that made it. Uh, not all of them, of course. Um, the main producer, I'm not quite sure who he is, but I'm aware of uh, some of the the DP's names, some of the people that participated in it. Um, you know, one of the interesting things about Iraq that's happening now is a lot of there are a lot of people who are going back to sort of. We're at the five-year mark. So five years ago, it's 2019, or in August 2019, in August of 2014 is when Bakar al-Baghdadi, that famous video where he stood on the steps at the Grand al-Nuri Mosque in Mosul, and he declared the start of the caliphate, the Islamic State Caliphate, uh, for which ISIS, or as we say in Arabic Daesh, 
was going to be taking over the region. And, um, and so we are at the five-year mark, so there are a lot of people who are going back and reviewing a number of things that happened this year. It's actually one of the reasons I would love to actually uh, not only finish um, my manuscript this year, but also potentially have, have it published uh, before the end of the year, because we are at an incredible marker um, to look back at, at what the hell happened. And so I think the documentary itself is, is looking at examining some of those things. Uh, we are also at the, I had two of my colleagues actually who were in um, Lalish and in Sinjar. These places are where Yazidis are from. Yazidis are a minority indigenous group um, that was massacred in August of 2014. The stories are very consistently the same, um, where you know you might have variances about who they saw or what they saw or what street they were on, but the story is consistently the same, and that is you had uh, dash fighters who came in in cars and trucks and a couple of um, uh, you know larger tanks and weapons and everything, and they descended into the Yazidi neighborhoods. They separated women, children, and men. They took the women and turned them into sex slaves. They killed and massacred most of the men. Um, and, and a lot of the Yazidis felt they were alone and, and tried to fight. Some of them fled. There are story after story after story about a, a family, you know, shoving 10 people into a car. And every wow. child, you know, old woman, and fleeing to the mountains. Um, I, I, I can't tell you how many times I heard families say, yeah, we, we barely got 10 people, or we, we had to, like, shove someone through the window to get the men, or we stuffed in it, you know, and took off, and they left literally to the mountains um, that they lived at the base of, because Sinjar's kind of in a valley. Um, and they, they escaped, you know, there were a number of them that escaped. As, as much as they could. There were families that were split up where men would say, you know, go, tell the women to go, and they would try and stay and fight. Um, and a lot of them lost their lives. Um, there's been mass graves found. So yeah, August August right now is a very big month in Iraq uh, because this is the month in which Daesh sort of took its foothold and its stronghold and said, we're here and, um, and we're gonna build our little empire for which they have militarily <coughs> lost obviously, yeah. um, since then. Uh, so it's just as a recent update, it, 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 was, uh, it was members of the Yazidi community that met with Donald Trump in the White House and had that, that awkward, horrible moment where he didn't know <laughs> anything about their situation. Is that correct? That's, that's the group of people we're talking that's about? Correct. So Nadia Murads, uh, she was actually a Daesh sex slave. She was able to escape. There were a lot of women who were able to escape. There were smugglers. Uh, that was actually one of the stories that I did, a group of smugglers that were helping, actively helping women get out and escape. Um, and she then fled. Um, she then became an advocate. Um, she started speaking out and started telling her story and started telling the story of her sisters and her the women in, in the Yazidi community and what was happening to them, she earned herself the Nobel Peace Prize as a result of this, um, advocating for them and uh, advocating for um, basically a role for the international community to, to try and help the Yazidi community, uh, to not only help support them financially, but a lot of Yazidis actually call for international uh, protection around Sinjar. A lot of them say, look, well, we, we want international forces to come protect us because we just don't think we're equipped. A lot of these people are mountain people and farmers. They aren't, um, they aren't fighters. So for them, they feel very, uh, they feel very uh, weak and they, and they feel very scared. Um, and, and so they, they need the international community's support. Unfortunately, uh, 45 is, uh, or as, or as, um, as one of our congresswomen says, she says, I'm going to call him the occupant, the occupant of the White House, um, is clueless. And so he, I, I'm of the belief he genuinely has no idea who she is, has no idea who the Yazidis are, and he has just absolutely no clue. And so she, along with other Nobel Prize winners, are at the White House and trying to talk to him and advocate, hey, look, you know, please do something to help us. Uh, because that's that's her role, and he's he's just lost. What? Who? They gave you a peace part? What is it? Why would they do that? Like, he's just that clueless. Um, 
And so that's really unfortunate. And, 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 you know, there were, there was conflicting, there was conflicting op-eds in Iraqi media about what happened, whether or not she should have done that. I was very proud of her for trying. Um, you know, there's a lot of people in the, in the community back in Iraq that don't think that, that she should have tried, that it was ridiculous, that, you know, she was just trying to create a moment. I'm like, well, yeah, absolutely. She was trying to create a moment. I would too. So I think, I think there's, you know, and I think because it's complicated, the Yazidi people feel very complicated around, around her publicity because they're also a pretty private people. Um, but I think that, that what she has done is she's drawn more attention to the Yazidi people group probably more than anyone ever has. So do you think that, that, that cultural, uh, cultural privateness has, has, is part of the reason that we don't know more about that situation? I think I think a lot of that is, and a lot of them really do just sort of want to get on with their lives. Um, you know, here, here's the other thing too: is that the Yazidis have a complicated relationship with Iraq in general. So you have the Kurd, the Kurds, who the U.S. actually supports in Syria and in northern Iraq, and then you have kind of the Arabs, which is the Arab Iraqis who are run out of Baghdad, and. And the complicated part of that is you have Yazidi people who believe they're closer to the, to the Arab population and others who will say they're closer to the Kurdish and some who say that they can't stand the Kurdish because they feel like the Kurds betrayed them when Daesh came two or three days before it was said that the Kurdish Peshmerga left, just abandoned them. So they have very complicated relationships with everyone around them. Um, the closest sort of ethnic religious group that Yazidis actually get along with are the Christians in Iraq and Syria. Um, but outside of that, they, they sort of struggle with a lot of their neighbors. And so I think that there's, there's a lot of fear. I think it's because they've gotten smaller and smaller as a society over time. Um, they believe that they date back to, you know, the first, first man, first woman uh, as part of their belief system. Um, and so you know, I think that that the other thing too is they've also just never had voices until now. They're, they they will tell you a Yazidi person will tell you we've actually had seventy four massacres in our existence, right? According to their own stories, but never before have we had social media, and never before have we had the power of everything that we do. And so, such an isolated group in the mountains of Iraq um, are all of a sudden put on the front page because their women are being completely slaughtered and enslaved. And we can see it, all of it, on TV, on our smartphones. And so it sort of has propelled them to the front story of, um, of Iraq. So I think there's a tendency for us to think of uh, the people of Iraq and Syria and elsewhere, and pretty much anywhere elsewhere, as sort of homogenous. And, and, and reading you and listening to you has, has made me aware that there are several different uh, uh, ethnic factions, even within Iraq and Syria, I, 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 ethnic is that kind of word that gets a little juiced because we tend to, you know, cleansing tends to come right after ethnic. But it seems like uh, there's a lot of a lot of internecine conflict between these groups. Is that correct? Um, I would I would say that. Here's the interesting thing about Yazidis. Yazidis, Yazidis are an ethno-religious group. So a lot like being, for example, being Jewish. Uh, there is sort of the Jewish tradition, Jewish religion, Jewish faith belief system, right? And then you also have being Jewish as sort of a an ethnic identity, right? Okay. Um, and so they kind of they sort of cross like that. And Yazidi Yazidi is the same in that sense. So is there um, is there a religious basis more Islamic or is it you know is it more broadly like uh, you know sort of Judeo Christian? How do they fit into the pantheon of? of there's somewhere there's somewhere between Christian and Islam, maybe. Um, but here's the thing, they are considered, particularly by Muslims who are, are much more strict about the belief system, they're called, they're called devil worshippers, and I'll explain why. Um, for anybody who has even a Judeo-Christian background, you, you'll probably understand this. Um, in the Bible, for example, there is reference to someone who is believed to be, quote, Lucifer. Now, Lucifer is an angel of God in the Bible who is sort of the musician and later becomes Satan because he's the one who gets kicked out, right? Um, so in the Bible, there's these references to this angel that is sort of kicked out of heaven who is believed to become the devil later on. There's two references in particular in the Christian tradition. 
there is a similar character in the Yazidi faith. And the Yazidi faith, uh, they call him Daush Melek. And this particular angel that is represented in the Yazidi faith, um, their belief is that this angel, when mankind is created and uh, God says that angels must sort of bow before men, this particular angel says no and says that, you know, he only knows that he should bow before God. But they believe that this sort of, that this character did not do that and sort of is sort of the one who encompasses all that is good and all that is evil. Sort of the, a little bit of a yin and yang kind of angel, right? Um, a lot of Dash would have called them devil worshipers because of this, because there's the belief that this particular angel would have been, quote, the devil. So it gets down to a very strange theology between the religious groups, like a difference in religious faith, right? And so you had Dash who called them devil worshipers and would slaughter them and use their women. Um, a lot of their Muslim brothers and sisters they got along with, some maybe they didn't, a lot of the Christians they tended to get along with more because Christians in the East tend to be much more about preservation of their culture and identity rather than sort of um, conversion or, uh, or sort of faith expansion necessarily. Um, unlike the West, who is all about faith expansion. So right. like, you know, sort of Aries and so forth. Whereas in the East, it's not, it's not really like that anymore. Do you think, um, that doesn't uh, mean, let, let me ask, do you think, I, you, know, I, you know, I don't think any of us are, you know, theologians in the in the in the formal sense, but no, sure. do you think maybe that's the difference between uh, Western Christianity, which kind of hangs its hat on the King James version of the Bible, which is really a Bible written uh, in support of of kings, and and uh, or, you know, is there a difference in the in the the reading tradition of Eastern Christians that might lead them not to be so expansionist? Um. Yeah. Actually, I do think I my my pers my perspective. Um, on the spread of Eastern Christianity versus Western Christianity is really interesting because what, what happened is, is when it went into the West, it became much more political. Um, I personally, and I, and I know that there are those who would disagree with me, but I personally look at Constantine, the emperor, who was said to be, uh, you know, a very powerful emperor, he converted. Right. And this to me the beginning of political Christianity in the West. Um, if you go east, this doesn't necessarily happen. Uh, there's much more. It does spread, and it does spread quickly, but it's not on a political front. It's still among smaller people groups. Interesting. And then it spreads. It sort of spreads that way. The, the Bible itself, the stories in the Bible, however you believe them, whether they're true or not for you, it doesn't really matter, they were written by a Jewish or a Hebrew people that were typically oppressed people. The writers of the Bible were part of an oppressed people group that were often conquered by other regimes. So if you are a Western political in power who reads the Bible, you might actually miss the central themes of the Bible because the Bible was written by people who questioned and subverted authority. Right, right, yeah. And people who were against uh, using faith as a way to oppress others. The stories are very clear about that. So it's very interesting to me that it is spread in the West in a very political way that it didn't really spread in the East that way. Um, and I think that that, I don't think, you know, anybody needs to necessarily be a, a, a religious theologian. I think once you just even start looking at some of the basic uh, sort of historical context, um, I think you can kind of, uh, begin to, to, to see some of that, that it just spread differently. So Eastern Christians and Western Christians have very different views on what it means to sort of hone in their identity with their faith and their practice. I gotcha. I got a question in the, in the, uh, in the comments from Cher. Uh, yeah. says, I'm interested in your daily life there, especially as a female. Did you find it difficult to extrapolate information from the people that you interviewed? Uh, difficult to get information. No, not at all. Um, People wanted to talk. They wanted to tell you their story. Now, we had situations where people were afraid to show their name or their face. There's ways around that. You change their name. Usually a man or a boy who didn't want his name to be revealed, we just called him Muhammad. Because um, they're all Muhammad anyway. 
Um, and that's an honor to be called that. So a lot of times that would happen. Uh, we had, a, you know, but then a lot of um, men would give their names, right? And that is the thing. It is very common to be called Ahmed and Muhammad and Ali, and depending on whether you're Shia or Sunni. And these are names that, that sort of honor, honor the Prophet for them. So um, I would always offer, do you want to change your name? If you don't want to, you know, what is your first name? Uh, if they didn't want to be filmed, we could uh, certainly shoot film or video of their hands, of the back of their head, uh, to make them feel safe. Um, but we never had somebody that wasn't at least willing to talk, to tell their story. I usually had people that were willing to, to talk to me for the most part. Okay, so do you want to address the, the, the other part of her question, which was about your life there yep. as, as a woman reporting in that, in that kind of a male-centric world? Um, so here's, it's really interesting. There were very few of us women. Uh, we did stick together a lot. Um, we appreciated each other, I think, on a great scale. Um, it, there were definitely very strong challenges. I definitely came across not just, I came across probably more, there's definitely a sexist society, a sexist society, sorry. Um, Run those words together. <laughs> uh, but there's also, it's, it's, it's interesting because I, I'm a bit of a, a, a third gender. I heard somebody put it this way the other day. I'm sort of a third gender. We weren't treated like their own women, who I don't always think that they exalt properly. Mm. And we weren't treated more equal as a man. We were somewhere in the middle because we were sort of from a different culture. Um, and so yes, we, we almost were like this third gender that sort of existed. I was always treated with great respect. I was always treated with kindness by a lot of men. I also had a lot of the younger ones who would flirt all the time. Um, you know, they would tell you they wanted a passport. Can you marry me? These kinds of things. You just, you know, you smile and nod and, and, and let it go for the most part, especially if they were soldiers, cause you want them to let you buy the, the checkpoint. Um, but, but for the most part, they were, they were genuinely very respectful. I actually had a uh, militia commander one time who he was serving myself and a couple of other journalists food that night, and they learned that I was a vegetarian, and so they brought me a huge tray of just extra vegetables just for me. Nice. Incredibly, you know, the, the, the imams and the sheiks who were their religious leaders were always very kind, would invite us in for coffee. Uh, would want to chat with us. You know, it's very common to go to an interview, whether you're in a refugee camp or a village or, you know, behind the front line somewhere and sit and have coffee and tea for an hour or two before you actually get to the interview anyway. Um, so there, there, there was definitely a respectful element to it. Um, I think sometimes women got away with telling stories that our male counterparts couldn't because they saw us less of a, as less of a threat. Um, and so you sort of played on that sometimes in order to get what you wanted. We did um, have challenges with our own with our own Western brothers sometimes. Um, it is still male dominated profession, and we had some some of our guys who didn't like working with women. And we had fixers, we had translators, Iraqi translators that wouldn't work with women, that wouldn't work with the girls, that would always pass us off. Uh, because they didn't, uh, for whatever their reasons were, didn't see us, well, didn't see us as equal, didn't see us as man, didn't want us there. Um, and so, and so there, those situations did exist. Um, I won't shy away from that. And it can be very, it can be very frustrating. But I also think that as a woman, you lose a little sense of your femininity there, because we automatically take on sort of this male, we take on our male energy. Um, because you've got to be able to like run from a bomb and be tough in an interview sometimes and ask the hard questions and you know, you got to be able to roll with boys sometimes. And like, so we just, you know, we took on that male energy for ourselves, um, because you have to, right. Um, and so I think that, that it was a mix. It was a blend of sort of coexisting in the best way that we could. Um, I personally, would go home at the, from being in the field at night and I would strip down and I would take a shower. And the first thing I would do after my shower is I put a pair of earrings in my ears, put a big pair of hoops in my ears. And even if I was only going to wear them for an hour or two, it didn't matter to me. It was a little taste of my femininity. Right. It was right. a little taste of being able to be myself. 
because I feel like in a way your identity sort of just gets stripped. Did you feel um, like, in, did in you feel like you needed to, to, to be less feminine because, uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, it seems to me that most of the problems that you encountered, like as you, you're, you're telling us that most of the problems you encountered with being female in that zone had to do with Western uh, male views of you in that zone, not the locals. But like I said, I think with the locals, we were like a third gender. It's not that they were, that I think that they respect women or they exalt women. Um, it's that, it's that they don't really know what to do with us. So they sort of treat us with this sort of reverence, but yet at the same time, like, you know, they can't really like we're there and our society. I had, I had, I had two, I had two Iraqi guys have a, we had a conversation about feminism actually one time and they, and I said to them, I said, why is it okay for me to be a war correspondent, but it's not okay for your wife or your sister to be one. And he's, they both said to me, they said, well, it's okay for you because your culture allows you to, but Iraqi women, we, we can't do that. They need to be flowers. So they should stay at home with the children. Okay. Um, so it's a complicated view. Even mind about how women should be treated. All right, Sherry's got a follow-up, which is when you are out on assignment, do you need to dress in traditional style of the country you're in, a burqa or hijab? No, not at all. I covered once. Um, when I was in Iraq, I, was, I went out with a group of Shia militia, and, um, and we, were, we went into a sheikh's home, and so it's, it was sort of respectful to, to cover, so I just threw my scarf over my head, not a big deal. Okay. Um, yeah, I've got a couple pictures of it somewhere, I'm sure. Uh, but, uh, but for the most part, I also, here's the thing, Christian women don't cover even in Iraq Okay. and then they understand. So the more you have a Christian population, I think in more conservative communities, the more likely you might see a blend of covered and uncovered. But you also have a lot of Muslim women who, especially in the modern age, who don't, who don't cover, who don't don't see the need for it. Um, a lot of Kurdish, the Kurds are mostly Muslim, and the majority of the women don't cover. Okay. Um, so it's it's really family by family. And I do think that the Middle East is incredibly diverse. Saudi Arabia, you have to cover. Iran, it's law, you have to cover. Uh, I've never been to either one of those countries. Um, in, in places like Iraq, uh, Palestine, Lebanon, uh, Syria. These are places that had a more of a blend of the secular, the Christian, the Shia, the Sunni faith, and that blend and diversity in society usually allows for, you know, a lot more freedom in your dress code. And so I was able to function very much that way. Good answer. Okay, thank you, uh, Michael Silvestri. It says, uh, have they expressed to you the concerns they have regarding our presence in the region, and what the, what they feel our role should be, if any? our presence in the region and what they feel our role should be um that's a good question, that's a good question. i you definitely hear different things the kurds the kurds can you guys still hear me yeah you're, you're good, good now, now. <clears throat> you're, good you're good now okay all right so, all right so the kurds see the americans as liberators because saddam slaughtered the kurds the Arabs see the Americans as invaders and occupiers. So it does depend on who you talk to. It's pretty clear about how they see our role. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm mystified that the Kurds still see us as liberators after having let them down repeatedly since the 90s. Uh, you know, we give them Peshmerga money. We give them hundreds of thousands. Like the Peshmerga, who is their heroic military force, we give them quite a bit of uh, Ash Carter actually signed a deal that gives them quite a bit of money uh, to be able to to train their forces, and we have a major base in um, in Erbil uh, for which we train Kurdish fighters, and and so I think that a lot of that has to do with um, our support of their of their of their people. We also support the Kurds in Syria, and I think so. Kurds have a tendency to kind of see the the U.S in a much more heroic view. Trump is actually very popular there um, in, in the Kurdish, Kurdish part of Iraq. Okay. Um, Cher is asking, the, uh, the men there do not sound very much like the men here. Some don't want to work with women or even converse with them. Does that square with your observation? Um, you don't even want to work with 
us. Maybe, uh, I mean, maybe share, maybe, maybe, maybe clarify that a little bit. I look, I think that's the thing. Women's rights is still an issue there. Women don't have a lot of rights. Um, there's actually only one center that I know of in Iraq that actually supports women who have suffered domestic violence. One. Wow. And that is very new. We're talking in the past three years right. that that has popped up. Um, it was actually a very hard story for me to sell. It was actually a story that I didn't sell. It was very, very difficult for me to get it picked up because uh, it was a story where, you know, we don't even deal with domestic violence appropriately in our own country, right. let alone what's one, what's one little center in a place like Iraq where we just assume every, everything goes wrong anyway. It doesn't really matter. So it was a very hard story to sell. It's very sad. Uh, there are women who are changing that. I would say... Um, you know, I think there's a younger generation of women. I saw in Baghdad, one of the things that I actually appreciated in Baghdad that I got a chance to see when I was there was a lot of young women are making their way into higher education, are learning how to become entrepreneurs. Uh, and it is the, the younger generation. It's the 20s, 30s um, who are saying, like, we, we want something more than what our, given, our government is Giving us, there were more women than ever before that were trying to run for parliamentary seats. So there are there are a generation of women that's trying to change that, but they have a very long way to go, I think, when it comes to a lot of um, women's rights issues in the country. However, um, a place like Iraq and Syria, we have to realize that Syria was once a middle class society, and Iraq actually even had more money than than uh, than Syria did, and so. The fact that women have had everything from cell phones to jobs to leadership positions, I'm not saying that there, like I said, there are plenty of human rights and they have a ways to, there's things to do, but the fact that there's, it's several steps up from say Saudi Arabia, who's just now letting women drive. So that's, you know that's sort of a, that's, that, that's also, I guess, uh, a kind of a sign of a, of a Western influence, uh, you know, a, a Western capitalistic influence that, that they've maybe had, had a step back. Uh, since uh, since the westernization of Iraq, right? Even, you know, under Saddam Hussein, uh, as bad as he was, it was stable. It was uh, sort of a Western style uh, existence, and that's maybe gone away, or at least at least uh, been been what's the word I'm looking for? Been shattered. You know what I mean? Like right. fragmented. Is that is that accurate? Maybe. Like, they're, not looking, look, at, they're people... not looking at in our tradition. They actually had some of this tradition there. Right, sure, absolutely they had some of this there. I mean, there are people who would say that for as much as they hated Saddam, they always knew where he stood, and they actually, you know, there, you know, there, was, there was an element where you, there was at least some peace in the country, and they, went, they could go to school, they could go to university, they could finish their studies, right? And then, you know, the U.S. invaded in 2003, and it actually dismantled a lot of that. And so there's a lot of Iraqis in particular that are very frustrated because they feel like the stem of the pro they feel like the root of the problems began with the American invasion in 2003, and it's gone on for what 15 over 15, well over 15 years. So um, is there is there a sense there though that 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 only uh, that that benevolence was only visited on one, you know, on either the Sunni or the Shia, and maybe that was an internal point of conflict. Like it seemed to me like Saddam was, was giving those benefits to his people, not necessarily to all the Iraqi people. Is that accurate? Or have I got that wrong? Correct. So he, so he was very much part of the, like the Ba'ath party, right. which was, uh, and, and, and actually a lot of the Ba'ath actually that there's, there's tension around them because a lot of them actually became former Dash sympathizers. Um, And, and so they, they were traditionally, they, uh, my understanding is they were traditionally Sunni. And then you had the Shia who took over the government after the invasion. But then you had Shia who were persecuting Sunni. And then the rise of Daesh, who technically is closer to, quote, Sunni or, or Wahhabism, which is, which is Saudi. Um, and so you had people who were sympathizers with that because they felt they were being oppressed by a Shia-run government. So it's been very tribal for a very long time, and okay. it's kind of been back and forth. And you have Christians and Yazidis and other people groups, minority people groups that have been caught in the middle. The interesting thing with Syria is that Assad is Alawite, which is a faction of, of, of Shia, and he basically, his father banded together all of the minorities. So 
Christians, Alawite, and other Shia groups, and they were a, a minority ruling the majority Sunni. Right? And so you actually have Christians in Syria who have, have been protected under Assad, and whether or not they like Assad doesn't really matter. They've sort of clung to his protection because of the fact that they are part of several minority groups that unified against the majority Sunni. So you have these two major groups of, of Islam that are sort of constantly in conflict with each other. In a place like Iraq, um, it got very complicated in, in, a, in a very strange blended society. The Kurdish people are an ethnic group who are mostly Muslim, and then they have a mix of Christian and sort of uh, Iranian influence, Zoroastrianism. So there's the, the thing is, is that most people don't actually realize how incredibly diverse Iraq actually is, and how it's how it's been taken over essentially by two groups of of uh, two sort of faith groups that are at war with each other um, when it comes to more extremist tribal issues. I mean, it, it makes a certain amount of sense that you know, it's one of the cradles of, of human civilization. It would have a pretty diverse group of, of, of overlapping ethnicities and belief systems. Uh, it's just, I just, there's a depressingly large uh, <laughs> component of tribalism in everything that we've discussed so far. Well, and I agree with you. I agree with you 100% on that. And I think one of the things that I, I feel like take a little bit of maybe a little bit of pride in a little bit is that I feel like I got to go to the cradle of civilization and sort of get woke a little bit about how the human condition works because there is so much diversity in Iraq because there is so much of a blend of, of faith groups and ethnic groups and people groups within the country that it's almost like you get to see what happens at a bare bones level of consciousness of how people relate to each other and how they cling to whatever tribe they most identify with when things are going wrong. I got you. Um, Cher's asking, let's get back to you. <laughs> uh, how, are you supporting yourself, how are you supporting yourself while you're writing the manuscript? Do you work where, where you are here in Thailand, correct? Uh, do you work there uh, or do you quickly write the book? Well, certainly, uh, currently I'm in Indonesia. Um, and, um, and so... The irony is, is that I, I have done some ad hoc work or freelance work here and there from editing or writing a, an op-ed or, or things like that. Uh, but then, um, you know, supplementally, as I've been writing this book, I did start sort of the fundraising effort uh, to, to be part of that because it does take a lot to, to really sit down and write. Basically, one chapter in a book is almost double an article for me. So it's like two articles. And... And it, it does take time. And the other part of it is, is because the book's content is so deep and so thick, it, it's a lot of mental and, and sort of, it's a lot of mental, emotional unpacking. And so, it, you know, it, it, it takes time to go through that because you'll write something and then you might go through and rewrite the whole damn page. Um, and then, you know, you might do it again and until you come up with at least a first draft that you're happy enough with to say, okay, I've ticked the box and that one can be set aside for now. Let's go on to the next, you know, chapter or section of what I'm writing. Gotcha. Dave Myers is in with the most important question about Indonesia. How is Indonesia and have you gotten pancakes from a boat yet? <laughs> no pancakes from a boat, but I have some, had some very delicious pancakes here that are actually more like crepes. Right. Fused with like kale and greens and delicious things and then fresh berries and fruit and instead of instead of thick sugary syrup like honey like natural honey it's delicious nice nice uh, yeah that's, most, that's of, that's most of what highlight. i know in indonesia i learned from anthony bourdain so <laughs> actually indonesia is interesting because indonesia right now is actually debating about how that they had a lot of foreign fighters that went into iraq and syria and the country is debating what to do with the ones who claim they want to come home Right, trying to re um, repatriate or not repatriate them, correct? Right. Well, here's the other thing. A lot of people actually lost their identification or burned their identification when they went to their caliphate. Huh. And then and then Dash issued issued paperwork, like, you know, just like we do have our IDs and everything. They issued a whole system that's now pretty much worthless. It means nothing. Wow. Um, Cher wants to know, what is the catalyst that caused you to say, that's it, I need to write this book? Um, <laughs> I... 
I mean, I, I think I always knew I was going to write a memoir somewhere. I, I would like to write maybe a few books in my lifetime. Um, I think I got to the end of Mosul. And I ended up sort of covering the country for another year afterwards. And it was just, it was just, I needed to rest and it was in me. And I had a very good friend of mine in Iraq, um, a friend of ours from, from Preemptive Love Coalition, who said, you've got to get away from Iraq to write about Iraq. Hmm. Um, and he was right. And so it was one of those things that as I was, as I was preparing to go, I was like, okay, it's, it's, time, to, it's time to do this. It's time to part, start putting this on paper. And, and so that's what I did. I think that was, that was the springboard for that. Are you still in contact with the people that you that you got to know when you were in Iraq and Syria? Uh, yes. Well, I mean, yes. So a number of my journalist friends who I developed very close relationships with, uh, the, the preemptive love family, they, I mean, they became very much a family to me. Um, and I have, I have a lot of love and appreciation for, for all of them. Um, and then there are some of my... Um, you know, some of my Iraqi friends and, uh, but from the Middle East. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that's the thing is that, um, you build relationships with people. You do your best to try. It might not be every day. It might not even necessarily be every week, but you try, you try to check in when you is can. That, is that, is that common that sort of embedding like that? Because it seems like a lot of the coverage that we've gotten from that region has been people who parachuted in, isolated themselves in a hotel and only wandered out, you know, with a handler to try and, uh, you know, and, and parse everything we need to understand about the region into, you know, one nightly news report. Um, so is it common for journalists to do what you did, which is sort of just go and saturate yourself with the local culture? For the freelancers, yes. For anyone who's doing freelance journalism, that's very common. A lot of times the staff networks, the CNNs, the Al Jazeera's, et cetera, um, it's not to say that the reporters haven't done that or haven't lived there or don't know their stories. They do, but <laughs> it's much easier for them to parachute in. Mm. Uh, so for example, you know, one of the reporters, uh, a couple of the reporters for CNN, they're based in maybe Istanbul or Beirut. And so then they fly in to places like Iraq when things get crazy or for example, Al Jazeera, they're based out of Doha or something like that. So it's much easier for them to do that because the networks have the money to do it. Freelancers don't have the money to do that. We live much simpler lives and on much less. And so um, we tend to immerse ourselves um, much more quickly and much more often in those places um, because it's our, it is our way of, of trying to, to get closer to the story first and, and be, get there as quickly as possible. That's fascinating to me that, that like, you know, I, I know that I, I linked you to it and I, I'm pretty sure you said you had watched it, but the Amanda Palmer video about the art of asking, it seems like, you know, like what she did, what she and her band did, which was basically to tour uh, on the, on the grace of their fans, you know, to, to show up in a town and need a place to crash. And sometimes it had internet, sometimes it didn't. It's, it kind of seems like that, that this, the, the freelance journalism that you've been practicing is that same kind of thing where you're de almost depending on the local people to 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 take you in, and in that way, you're probably telling a far more intimate story than the people that are uh, covering it from uh, from the larger networks. Is that accurate? I would I would actually say that's very accurate. Um, look, we, you know, when I lived in Iraq, we lived in Erbil, which is in northern Iraq in the Kurdish-controlled area, and a lot of those journalists would actually live together in what we called flop houses. Just think of a big house with a bunch of room and a bunch of journalists. It's like our own journalist hostel. Um, and, and then a lot of times we would go out together. And then sometimes if you stayed the night in a place like maybe outside of Mosul with the military, or if you, um, you know, as, as it got safer in Mosul, people would stay the night more often. Or if you went to other regions, like I would, you know, you go to Tel Afar, which is further north or whatever, you would stay in the town closer to it, or go to Doha, um, which is even further north. So you would stay in these towns around it. And so then you, yes, you absolutely had more connection, a little closer. You worked with your translators who oftentimes we would meet their families and we would eat with them. You would start before dawn and we would get to the first checkpoint or the second checkpoint or the third one because you'd go through a bunch of them. And we would eat breakfast with the soldiers for two hours because they had to wait on a commander 
who was who was had to give them permission to let us through and it was just this whole process and so we spent a lot of time eating with them breaking bread with them drinking their over sugared tea and coffee <laughs> and and even smoking cigarettes with them in the field um typically because we would have to wait and when while you're waiting what do you do other than sort of create relationships with the local people to try and understand them better and it, it really ends up contributing to our storytelling right okay so let me let me break in for a minute and say that uh because we're going to feed this as an audio podcast i want to make sure everybody knows uh, what we're doing Corey and i are talking this morning with our friend ash gallagher uh, who is a, a freelance correspondent who spent considerable time in the Middle East, in, in Syria and Iraq, and in Lebanon, and in uh, in Palestine, and 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 uh, and she brings an amazing insight to our understanding of the region. There's just I just I don't want to I don't want to be hyperbolic, but there is just nothing more important than having someone who spent time on the ground there bring that understanding to us. And Ash's book is a, a labor of love and, and generous support. So you can go to ashgallagher.com forward slash book and make a donation. There is also a GoFundMe uh, at uh, Reckoning in the Rubble is, uh, is the name of the project. Uh, so if you were to go to GoFundMe, uh, there's a link in the thread. But of course, if you're listening to this at home, you'll need to search for Reckoning in the Rubble on GoFundMe and find a way to contribute. Uh, you can also donate via PayPal. Uh, this is important, important work. And I think, I think, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm overwhelmed that we get to spend uh, considerable time with you. And Mike Silvestri has got a question. So, so for those that are listening on audio, Ash Gallagher, uh, you know, is worth a Google because you're going to find out this is a person that spent a considerable amount of time uh, with, as, as soldiers would say, her ass in the grass, uh, you know, out there learning about these people and their lives and bringing that back to us. Uh, so Mike Silvestri asks an important question. If there's one idea, one concept or reality that the U.S. and Western culture at large needs to understand regarding Iraq and the Middle East and come to grips with, what would it be? Have we still got you? Yeah, you do. I was, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. if, you're, if you were ever going to take some time to answer a question, yeah. we will wait. I it was it was a deep breath moment. It's a very it's an excellent question. What first comes to mind is Iraq isn't actually a faraway place. It's in your backyard. Iraq is a place where the people are just like you and I. And they're divided and they're unified just like you and I. And They are people who have had their lives threatened, you know, that my children that we often can't imagine. And so when we as human beings say, I would, you know, die for my family, that's exactly what they're doing. They're doing anything and everything to protect their families and their friends and their communities from the worst of humanity. It's also something where I would say that Iraq and, and what has happened there is never far from what could happen in the United States if we don't get a control on our violent culture. I have seen young men who can assemble and disassemble AK-47s and M16s who may not get another chance at a good life, at an educated life, and if we don't get a hold on some of that shit in the United States and our violence and our guns, we're going to turn our kids into some of, the, some of the same boys that I sat with who don't, will probably not live another kind of life. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, so, Ash... At- you're breaking up a bit on us here. Place we can use it. Yeah, Corey, I think we're kind of the signal here. Yeah, yeah. Gosh darn it! Yeah. <laughs> Boo. Um, 
All right. So so I, I, I think we should probably go ahead and wrap up now since we're kind of losing signal. Yeah. Uh, but uh, importantly, uh, it seems to me what Ash is saying is they're not of them, they're us. Um, and we should be treating them like we would treat ourselves and each other. And I also think, oh, yeah, <laughs> that's absolutely that. I think that's, that's absolutely the truth. That's absolutely the truth. Um, I think they're not only they're not only us, but they're also they're also the example that we can try and and shift. Um, and, and Iraqis, Iraqis are such good people. And the truth is, they love us. They love American people. They may not always like our military, but they do have a great understanding that the American people are not necessarily the government decisions or the military decisions. They do actually get that. And, and I think that, that, that they, they, they truly love the American people. So, so, you know, maybe it would benefit us to love them back. Bring them in, refugees. Imagine that. Yeah, I mean, that's what Canada's doing. Well, and, and that's, you know, that's the work at home, right? The work at home is making sure that we preserve um, our status as, as, as refugee welcomers, as, uh, you know, as, as a set of institutions that protect uh, the, the weak, the poor, and the, and the desperate, um, and, and preserve it. I don't think we've lost it yet, but I think we are on the brink of losing it. And I think there's a lot of work for us to do at home that, uh, yeah, there's a lot of work for us to do at home, period, full stop. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, guys. Absolutely. All right. Uh, Ash, thank you so much for your time. I know that uh, it's pretty late where you are, so thank you very much for joining us. And I hope you get pancakes from a boat. Uh, <laughs> I, if you, I don't know if you've ever seen, I know exactly where Dave got that. There is an Anthony Bourdain episode where he was staying on a, in a hut on a lagoon and a guy uh, came up uh, in a canoe and made pancakes for him right there in his hut on the lagoon. So it was quite beautiful. And I hope you get to experience that. <laughs> um, we'll I have see a, how it goes, for sure. I have a last question. Are you, um, do you have a plan to come home and, and, and visit here? <laughs> so here's the thing. Here's, here's the thing, guys. Um, look, this book is, is of huge importance. If we can get it off the ground, there's going to be a tour and, you know, uh, Newport Ritchie is just pretty high up on that list because you guys have been amazing and supportive and incredible. And I cannot thank you enough um, for how kind and supportive you have been over actually just what feels like two years or so. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, you guys are, are you know, pretty, uh, pretty high on that list. You guys are actually number one on that list because uh, I definitely want to meet a lot of the most amazing, supportive people that right now are, are just names and pictures. So, so you know, um, let's get this thing rolling and, and it'll, uh, it'll come together, right? Yep, that's absolutely. We're, we, we've got a plan. We've got a place to put you and a bookstore to host it at. So we're, we're all set for the Ash Gallagher book tour here in, uh, in West Pasco <laughs> County, Florida of all places, all the places that, uh, that, that you could land for, for part of your book tour. Uh, that would be a pretty amazing. It's, it's amazing to me. I'm, I'm humbled and sort of shocked in a way. And, um, I do have to give a special shout out to my friend, Brian Bozen, yes. who introduced me to Corey and, and so by way of this sort of six degree, actually what, two degrees of separation, and Kevin Bacon here, we, we ended up with. <laughs> oh, darn it. We lost her. Freaking Zoom. Like this amazing community watch and, and um, sort of be f admire uh, and be part of in sort of a, you know, in sort of a curious, curious way through, through way of your show and, and your community. So I, I appreciate all of that. All right, Ash, take care of yourself. That's the most important thing, right? And we know that's sort of what started you on this journey. We're really proud of your, uh, of your, your focus on self-care. And we want to make things as easy for you as we can. So those of you who are in the thread or listening along, uh, check out ashgallagher.com forward slash book. You can make a donation to support Ash's efforts to finish writing and editing her amazing uh, memoirs of her time in, uh, in war zones in Iraq and Syria. And we, we really urge you to do so. It's going to be a meaningful and important book. And uh, that's why we're here. Because, we, you know, we, 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 uh, we love and honor the work that you do. Uh, we're a little jealous uh, that you got to experience those things. And I know that they weren't easy. Uh, and the best things never are. So thank you very much, Ash, for joining us today. 
And thanks to all of you for your amazing comments and questions in the, uh, in the thread. I hope that uh, the thread stays alive for a while. You know, ask questions. I'm sure Ash will be paying attention and can answer those questions, uh, especially if you tag her in your post. Uh, that would be important. So check it all out. Ash, thank you very much. Get some sleep. And uh, let's, uh, let's try and reach that again for Wednesday for, the, uh, for the, uh, the, the women's coffee takeover. You and Cher, maybe we get you together next Wednesday and try again. On Ash yeah. Wednesday. <laughs> you guys are amazing. Thank you. All right. So also, we're going to get you more internet. We'll send, <laughs> we'll, we'll mail you some. We'll mail you some internet. Yeah. That's what's going to happen. All right, guys. Um, so yeah, uh, huge thanks to Ash Gallagher. Huge thanks to you guys for hanging out with us the whole time. Um, I am now going to see how many minutes it takes me to upload this to YouTube and Anchor. And I really appreciate you. We'll definitely try oh, man. for next week. And uh, in the meantime, everybody have. Sorry, Ash. Yeah, it's like it's like stacking up a whole bunch of stuff, and then it serves it up about thirty seconds later. Yeah. So why don't we go ahead and wrap this up? Yep. And we'll try again. Later right, on. We'll see you guys tomorrow morning, 10 o'clock, same bat time, same bat channel. I'm Greg Smithwick. That's Corey Cottrell. And we've been joined today by Ash Gallagher, war correspondent, and uh, our friend from afar, who we've never met in person. And Dot we're, com. Uh, getting the, uh, we're working on getting the, uh, the book tour, the book done so we can do the book tour and we can actually have her here in Newport Ritchie and show her how the Gulf Coast lives. Say the thing. Sasquatch is real. All right. That was awesome. Yeah, she's just. We need more people like that. Oh. Yeah, I don't know. I think we may have lost her here. So, all right. Let's no, go. actually, I'm still here, guys. Oh, like I can hear you. Oh, it's funny. <laughs> cool. We're just gonna keep talking about you like you're not here. And then all of a sudden, I hear. A, I think there's a 30 second lag or something. Sometimes, between yeah. you guys, yeah. and I will have a much better connection. I will have a much better connection next week for sure. Awesome. Um, I just this week, I guess it just didn't wasn't rolling. But um, no, I appreciate you guys having me on. It was kind of like we kind of went from like, you know, sort of normal Wednesday stuff to like, hey, let's do this audio podcast interview thing. So you know, I hope my answers were were you know sufficed. You're perfect uh, for, for the purpose. You just shush. Okay. It was awesome. We never worry about you as a guest. <laughs> no, God, no, no, <laughs> uh, no. That and, and the the whole reason why we do this kind of thing is that it, we want it to be able to go wherever it's going to go, um, and and that's right. That 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 level of experience that you have is exactly what I know. Both Greg and I want all of fucking America to have a hundred times more of. Because uh, they just don't right. get it, right? And so, in a lot of ways, we're preaching to the choir with this, but it really gives people that 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 sense <laughs> that you know we we really are all in this together, and the, and that that's why the work that you're doing is so important. So that's what we needed to talk about. That's good. And our you know our home may not be on Facebook forever. We know that that Facebook as a platform it probably has a limited shelf life. We don't know what the next right. thing is yet, but we're starting to think about how we can uh, broaden our footprint a little so we don't uh, sink into the snow. You know, it's funny because I'm actually, I'm kind of doing the same thing. Like I'm actually starting to look at, cause I'm, I'm starting to put together workshops and stuff um, that I want to do on things like storytelling and healing and stuff. And it's funny because YouTube now has a, a way for you to do like paid content and more like live stream stuff. I mean like, and that's the thing is they, I actually read a business article recently that was saying more people are using YouTube for their playlists than they are like the sound clouds and the, and the yep. other audio, even for Greg, even for audio, like that's like, yeah. like we got a huge number of requests and there's some interns now for the moving forward podcast that are taking the audio and just doing the image thing because like half of the people in the group wanted that to happen. And then we're still, we got, have the closed, uh, 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 you have the closed group for Patreon supporters where they get like full video or whatever, but yeah, it's, it's a whole thing. All right. It's a whole thing. It's a whole so, thing. So, so if we were to package yes. this for YouTube, could we include some of your photographs? Would that be all right? Um, yeah, uh, sure. Yeah, if there's stuff in there you want. Um, also, there's, I mean, there's stuff on my website as well. So if you guys wanted to like, pull something from that to, to put up on there, that, you know, maybe some of those, I don't know which, I forget, I'll have to check which ones did I send you. I don't remember what I sent you. Um, <laughs> 
I don't but, know. Yeah, feel free to like. I don't know. Just pull them okay. off your website or whatever. All right. So, well, you know, we'll of course put a credit um, at know, the bottom of each one. So. I think I think you guys are really good. One of uh, the Peshmerga soldiers actually on the hill. Uh, a soldier. Yeah, please. I mean, use. I'm looking at the pictures now. Feel free to use some of that stuff. Okay. Cool. Um, there's a picture uh, of. You know, all kinds of different random things that were kind of in there. So. For uh, uh, the back end thing, like I'm going to upload this. I'm not going to edit it at all. So if we can add pictures because YouTube's a got an editor, okay. um, then, then we can do that. That's part, part of this, this new deal that I'm doing is that like, I don't have time for any of this, but the <laughs> amount of force amplification that we can get from uploading just the raw stuff we can do. I'm not going to do any editing. However, uh, on anchor, there is the capacity to do editing if, our resident editor wanted to do that. Um, and on YouTube, there's like a whole bunch. There's like a whole suite. I'll send you the login for the, for the thing. Uh, I think I did before, but I'll make sure that you have it. So it is entirely possible that we can do that. I just want everyone to know that I will not be doing that. All right. Um, even though it's a good idea. Uh, hey, just, um, if, you guys, if you guys use the pictures, just say something to the effect of all, all pictures provided by Ash Gallagher. Oh, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, we'll for sure. Absolutely credit for sure. Yeah. hundred percent. That is faux shizzle. All right, guys. I have to close this out for the thing to be made. Bye, Ash. Thank you very much. Yes, right. thanks, Ash. Cheers, guys. Bye.